Hello and welcome back to Old Sport Podcast. It's been a pretty busy week in the sporting metaverse as well as the broader world, but we're here to take you through it all, including tennis, AFL, football, cricket, hit or miss on this day and much, much more. I'm Hamish Stewart and looking through the lens is Hugo Carson and Ben Rosen. Hugo, another week, another Titanic netball match. Is the team simply an irresistible force? Uh, in one word, yes. Um, no, good to be back. Another big win for the netball team and uh, excited to get into things. How many in a row is that? Uh, I think it's like 15 in a row, including last season. Um, we went on an unbe- unbeaten run through finals and uh, have not lost this season yet and we're six games in. It sounds, um, we're talking off air, it's actually very, very similar to the, the Melbourne Demons analogy. <laughs> so if you're, yeah. if you're around the Entrecot area on a Wednesday night, just be aware Hugo and his team get into punch-ons and um, <laughs> seasonal derail from there. So yeah, I'm sure Hugo will keep that, that on board. That'd be a great ESPN 40 for 40 documentary. <laughs> Three-course meal at Entrecot that derailed the Melbourne Demon season. Uh, I'd watch it. <laughs> so good. All right, Ben, why don't you take us into some results from the week? Yeah, happily. So starting with the US Open, fourth and final tennis major of the year, and Spanish teenager, the 19-year-old Carlos Alcaraz, um, cemented his name in the record books, winning the US Open men's singles final and becoming the youngest number one male tennis player in the history of the sport. He defeated Norway's Casper Rudd, 6-4, at Arthur Ashe Stadium Monday morning, our time, to claim his maiden Grand Slam singles final. Um, he has one hell of a bright future. Uh, on the women's side of the draw, we had Aya Swatek sweeping on Jabor in the US Open women's singles final, uh, a match between the two, world's two best players. And that was her third Grand Slam singles title, second of this year. And in the second week of the AFL finals on Friday night, we had the mighty Brisbane Lions cause a big upset against the Melbourne Demons. Um, Shock loss for the Ds and a a bitterly disappointing way for them to end their season in straight sets. And on Saturday, we had the force of nature that is the Magpie Army and the Pies getting up by 20 points over a pretty lowly looking Fremantle Dockers outfit. Over to the AFLW, we had round three action. We had the Doggies winning by three points over North, Crows by 14. Oh, sorry, Doggies by three points over the Dockers, Crows by 14 over North. Uh, Giants quite easily over Sydney by 47. Magpies by just the four points over the Cats in game of the round. We had Lions by 73 points over the Poor Suns. Uh, a draw between Carlton and Port Adelaide probably went early. I game, 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 yeah, but the last, the last minute goal in the Cats game was pretty good. The Ds beat the two-game unbeaten stretch of the Saints by 26 points. Richmond by 35 over the Hawkies. And finally, the Bombers with a comfortable 52-point comfortable win over the Eagles. Quickly in the golf, we had the BMW PGA Championship wrap up a couple of nights ago. It was actually lost around because of the passing of Queen Elizabeth. So it's just played over 54 holes, but it was nonetheless a very exciting event. We ended up having Shane Lowry winning by one shot over Rory McIlroy, 
both played the 18th hole incredibly, getting it on two in the par five, but uh, Lowry's one-shot lead prevailed as they both birdied. Over to you, Hugo. Yes, and we had the first week of the NFL this week um, gone by. It was an incredibly close game with several games decided by uh, small margins or, or single scores. Uh, had a few key results, including a blowout win for the Bills over another favourite, the Rams. That was in the season opener, Friday morning Australian time. We also had the Steelers upset the Super Bowl losers, the Bengals. That was a bit of an upset there. Uh, Colts tied with the Texans. The Giants won in week one for the first time in six years after the Titans missed a pretty gettable field goal. Um, Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes both started off their seasons with big wins. And there was more of a, a changing of the guard in the NFC North as the Vikings easily overcame Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. Rodgers did not look happy on the field as they once again struggled to find a wide receiver for him. Uh, in the final game of the week, we saw the return of Russell Wilson to Seattle, the team he's played his whole career with. Um, he's now playing for the Broncos, who chose to kick what would have been an equal longest field goal in the history of the NFL to win the game, rather than backing their $245 million quarterback to get five yards up the field. Uh, we also had another race in the Formula One, uh, return to Monza this year, the Italian Grand Prix. Unfortunately for Daniel Ricciardo, also, the return of the Monza curse as a broader premature end to his race after what was looking like his best performance of the year, really solid performance, holding up a lot of the midfield group. Max Verstappen won again, however, ahead of Charles Leclerc, who raced well in his home Grand Prix. And in the last podium place was the ever-consistent George Russell. Hamish, not much soccer, but a few big games actually in the end. Yeah, that kind of sums it up, Hugo. The English Premier League match rate was postponed due to the passing of Her Majesty the Queen. And there are several further games postponed this weekend, including the Liverpool-Chelsea blockbuster because of the Queen's uh, funeral and other services um, around her her passing. But we did have Champions League action midweek. It, it started off this morning and will continue tomorrow morning Australia time. Liverpool left it late against Ajax. Tottenham lost 2-0 to Sporting and Bayern beat Barcelona 2-0 with a couple of delightful goals. So I recommend checking out the highlights from that game. Tommy Rogic also has a, a new club. It was announced over the weekend. He's now a West Brom player in the championship, which is really exciting uh, to see him back in English football. And Sydney United beat Brisbane Raw and they will play MacArthur in the final of the Australia Cup, previously known as the FFA Cup. And that's not Sydney FC. This is Sydney United who are um, an MPL team and it's one of the, the fairy tale stories of this competition. MacArthur absolutely thumped the Oakley Cannons. I think the final score was 5-2. It just wrapped up then uh, in the other semi-final. But exciting to see a non-A-League team in the final there. In the NRL, the Panthers thumped the Eels, which was largely expected by many pundits. Uh, the Cowboys pipped the Sharks in game of the week. The Rabbitohs beat the Roosters in an absolutely wild game in the All-Sydney uh, elimination final with multiple players sin binned within a couple of minutes. Just it was very like nine throughout the game. It yeah, I think it was seven in total, seven or nine. Yeah. Um, and yeah, once it started, it just didn't seem to stop. And then it was flowing on into the crowd as well. Uh, kind of uh, NRL on show, I guess. Um, and then, <laughs> Sorry, couldn't help myself. And then unfortunately, the Melbourne Storm lost the Raiders for, for Storm fans. Um, the Melkers, they're known up in Canberra, have a really good record down in Melbourne and will be confident going into, into this week's game. 
in the semi-final. Finally, in the cricket, England beat South Africa within two days' play in the final test match over there at the Oval. It's quite a remarkable game. The, the first day was rained out for no rain. The second day, no play due to the, the Queen's passing. And there was a lot of debate over whether the game would either continue, but the ECB managed to get it on, which seems to be the right call. Um, they had a pretty incredible pre-match atmosphere and ceremony happen. Um, the crowd kind of just stood and was silent for six minutes without any uh, announcement over loudspeaker or anything. They just took it upon themselves, um, which was pretty remarkable scenes. And the game was trending in a really interesting fashion. Both teams bowled out in the, the low one, middle 100s in their first innings. England had a 40-run lead and South Africa got to 70 for one in their second innings at, um, at lunch break and then fell apart in the following session. They only had a lead of 130 going into the fourth innings and England got their one down. It was mainly on the back of some brilliance from Broad, Stokes, Anderson and Robinson. Closer to home, Australia won 3-0 against New Zealand in their one-day series. Uh, but most notably, it was Aaron Finch's swan song. He's retired now from international cricket. Um, not one day international my, cricket. Sorry, one day international cricket. Not going to toot my own horn, but someone may or may not have predicted that on, <laughs> on last week's show. Uh, and uh, Who did you get the scoop from? I just chatted to Aaron. <laughs> talked about where he was at. And, yeah, Friend of the podcast. Know. Friend of the podcast, of course. Unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> All things considered. <laughs> He said, he said that's the way he wanted it to be leaked to the media. So I did my thing. And over in Dubai, we had the Asia Cup wrap up and Sri Lanka won that tournament for the seventh time, which is pretty good effort. Same one at the same amount as India now. Uh, India basically choked as they like to do in, in any tournament against both Sri Lanka and Pakistan in the final four stage, super four stage, I should say. But more importantly than the Sri Lanka win, Virat Kohli got his 71st hundred after a two year <laughs> drought um and it was in possibly the most important game he'll ever play dead rubber against afghanistan who about 36 hours previously had played probably the most intense game they'll ever be a part of against pakistan uh, but anyway good on virat for for getting that monkey off the back so to speak that's enough of the results though boys we should dive into our first main story of the week hugo would you like to start with the afl finals Yes, of course. Absolutely. Um, let's start with the results from the last weekend. Then we'll go into a preview for next week. The Brisbane-Melbourne game. Hamish, we had the honour of being there. Um, the start, it just seemed like business as usual, don't you think? And then and Melbourne just fell apart like they have at the, the latter end of the season. Do you think Brisbane winning or Melbourne losing is the biggest story here as well? Uh, it's, it's hard to say which is the biggest story. Um, I I think in history, it'll probably look back at Brisbane winning just because of the, you take it in full picture of their previous finals record and the MCG hoodoo and all of that. Um, record against this, Melbourne this year. Yeah. In terms of this season specifically, probably, you know, we said after round 10 on this podcast, why don't we just skip forward to the prelim finals and Melbourne aren't even in the prelim finals. So yeah. it just shows you like, how how far they've fallen and you know we talked a lot about most disappointing teams of the season you could argue melbourne is just given where they were at one point throughout the season uh, i think they they're favorite been... for the most disappointing team of the season now like to be 10 and 10 and 0 and then they didn't win a single final like you can say they made a semi-final but that's only because they you know they earned the right to finish in the top four granted but you know, you, you're in the game to win premierships and they didn't. <laughs> Where did it go wrong? Did, did they get 
found out? Did they lose? Completely got found out. Once teams worked out how to get past the the intercept marking down the line, and even Brisbane found a way to get past that in the second half of that game. That was what changed it, and what changed it in pretty much every game. It felt like Melbourne were just playing the same game on repeat towards the end of the season. Carlton did it to them, um, and didn't quite get over the line. Brisbane did it. Sydney did it the week before. It, it was the same thing. Collingwood, absolutely. Happened over and over again. And I think they'll have to be, or there's obviously going to be a lot of change with Luke Jackson out, Brody Grundy in um, is the most likely scenario. And then wouldn't be surprised if some coaching changes um, occurred like they are at, at the Bulldogs right now. Um, you've got to think about, you know, they, they didn't throw Petty forward until the season was already over and he looked the most comfortable forward they've had all season. First big forward 50 mark they took in the second half of the season. It was in their last 10, 10 minutes, that is. Um, you wonder why Goodwin didn't didn't try more. Goodwin yeah, that, <laughs> here first. Um, I think the fitness staff will also be reviewed. They lost Aaron yeah. Burgess to the Crows this year. And I mean, the Crows were renowned for, you know, running hard and staying in games and playing that tough contested brand, whereas... The D's were so good at figuring. There was almost the reverse last year. They would get to half time in a low scoring affair, figure a team out and blow them away. Whereas we just didn't see it happening this year. Um, I think also, you know, Petrarca's leg was no good. Gorn was clearly hampered um, by injury in the second half of the season. Ben Brown didn't look comfortable and they didn't have Tom McDonald. So get all those guys back and fit. Um, ben, what do you reckon Melbourne's number one priority is this off season? Is it a trade thing? Is it a, a health thing? Is it a... Um, Game style thing. Um, yeah, it's probably a game style thing. I def- tend to agree with you, Hugo. They they just got found out. And you look at the teams that have been able to to threepeat or build real dynasties. Um, it's not as if they play one brand of footy that is significantly superior for three or four years. They evolve. They adapt. Obviously, starting from a very high base. But I think there's a a small deal of compla- uh, complacency that set in with the D's perhaps. I um, just thought that their predominance on the MCG, their finals experience and whatnot would carry them through and obviously didn't. I'm sure they'll lick their wounds. They've still got probably a, a top two, three list in the comp, uh, notwithstanding that they'll lose a couple of, of players. But I think, yeah, just a, a little mindset readjust and some, some tactical things, but I'm sure they'll be right back up there next year. Yeah, I think it's also important to not um, undersell the influence of off-field would have had on Melbourne. We've already talked about the Entrecote situation, which would have had a huge impact on the players. And then there was boardroom quabbles as well. And it just wasn't right for Melbourne this season. Um, And, you know, you can talk about a premiership hangover. I don't really think it was that necessarily, but... Um, yeah, definitely not what Melbourne fans were hoping for when they were 10. Was it 10 zip or was it 11? Anyway. I think it, I think it was 10. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Hugo, on to the other flip side of it. Can Jared Berry just cut off his charge? Can the Lions yeah. beat the Cats on Friday night? I think they can. I don't think they will, but they definitely can. They're, they're on this run that we saw Bulldogs go in 2016 and then GWS who made it all the way to the grand final and got found out there um those are the two teams who have done it from outside the outside the top four and i really think they can build on this momentum they've they can carry on from this this win at the mcg and use the form they've built 
Um, they're playing a little bit different, you know, throwing the magnets around a lot. Um, Neil is in unbelievable form and Barry playing awesome game. Um, just because you guys were there and I've heard some whispers about this during the week and it really interests me. Obviously, Danaher didn't play the semi and I didn't watch it as closely as you did, but I've heard that their forward line structure looked pretty dynamic and there are whispers, I don't know how serious they are, about not bringing him back in for the prelim. Is there any merit in that or is that just um, filling up a 24-hour news cycle? I oh, know it's it's honestly the the ladder there. So people don't realize Tom Fullerton played in this game. Like he's literally like a backup rucker, and he played out six percent game time, sat in the forward line. Um, Joe Danaher, uh, Tom Fullerton may um, evolve and develop into a Joe Danaher like player, but I actually think it's a great opportunity for Brisbane. Danaher come in, play higher up the ground, get him to play the the second ruck role to Mac and Ernie, who is actually probably more touch and go than people think to get over his concussion and to get back. Um, yeah, it's rough on Darcy Fort if he misses out, but uh, unfortunately, that's what happens at this time of year. He played a really good game, but you're not going to pick him in front of Danaher to be playing second ruck or or, or third forward. Um, I think what it showed is that Danaher's got to come up the ground and leave the space for Charlie Cameron behind because Charlie Cameron had six touches, but being at the game, you would have said he's probably the most influential player on the ground, every time it went near him, they scored a goal and he was so deadly with his finishing as well. Charlie Cameron um, running back to goal is so much more dangerous than oh, yeah. leading up. Like they he, just have to play like that now, especially with Geelong's defence. Um, and I think Geelong are much more likely to be able to kick a score than um, Melbourne are right now. So Brisbane have to be able to score big like they did against Richmond, maybe concede more, but that's the way they play. And I think they're a big chance. Yeah, high-scoring team. They kick over 100 points there every chance. But I think it's a game that has to be played on their terms. They can't try and beat you along at their own game. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, Hugo, Frio are the other team that was on the losing end with Melbourne this weekend. They are about to go some under some serious list changes. Up to five players expected to request trades. We've already had Rory Lobb do it today. Blake Akers most likely to head to Icon Park. Um, and we've got Liam Henry. Griffin Logue also looking at, at moves as well. Uh, what do you reckon it's where to from here for Freo? What do they offer Luke Jackson in terms of role? And what do they offer Melbourne in terms of uh, compensation and, and remuneration yeah. for a Jackson trade? Yeah. So I, I just want to start on Freo before I get on to Jackson specifically. I just think that it's a bizarre period for Fremantle that they're going through this dramatic list change. You look at people like, I mean, um, Rory Lobb looked like the only dangerous forward option that Saturday night. Blake Akers was arguably best on ground. He's going to leave. This is all to clear space for someone who is going to be a big player for them, but is he worth the amount of money and the amount of damage it's going to do to their list? I just cannot believe they've, they've made this run into finals should have probably finished in the top four after the start of their season they had. And then you just dismantle your, your young list like this after one finals run for one key and good player. But uh, yeah, it seems strange, strange list management choices. And then what's Jackson work at, worth? I think is at worst at worth, <laughs> worth at least two first rounders. At least um, two. 
at least two. So I don't think you'll, they'll get more, but I think yeah. it's definitely worth the two two first rounders they're talking about. Melbourne seem to want two top 10 picks. I don't think that gets done. I just don't think Fremantle have the capability to get those two top 10 picks. And then I don't know how Melbourne would go about getting them as well. Um, I think it was interesting to hear Jackson say, I want to move to WA, not to Fremantle. Um, shows that he really does just want to go home. Um, and I think a big win for Melbourne as well because you get, you know, a bit of a bidding war. Um, yeah. and makes Fremantle and West Coast, who I think are a genuine chance to get him. Uh, and uh, not arguably, I think definitely the more logical choice for Jackson. You know, he goes there as Nick Nat's replacement, guaranteed time as the number one Ruckman, whereas Sean Darcy and him, who knows if it's going to work. Neither of them are really forwards and yeah. Bizarre. I like it. I like it for Melbourne. Like he's looked somewhat disinterested. It's been more or less a fait accompli that he'll leave all year. They'll get overs for him for sure. It's just the nature of these things. So yeah, I don't I don't think there'll be many crocodile tears at Demon Land. They got a they got a flag. He played pretty well in it. Um but I two first rounders feels about right. I agree with you. I don't think they should get nor should they get. Uh, sorry, I don't think they will get, nor should they get two top 10 picks. I think it's overs, personally. Um, we'll we'll talk about this more later, but I think if it's West Coast, you just put your pick two on the table and you say, that's all we're, we're offering. Because, um, yeah, he's like, he's a good player. And, you know, he's played 50 games, rising star. But I don't think he's shown himself to be any more than the pick three that he was selected with. Um, I don't think he's developed past that stage just because it was kind of stunted this year didn't didn't appear to kick on and I just think when it comes to Ruckman when you look at the teams that have won premierships over the last 20 years you don't need the best Ruckman in the comp to win your flags yes Melbourne did it with Max Gorn but Toby Nankervis is a three-time premiership player and he's probably not in the top five or ten Ruckman in the competition so I, I don't know if you sell the farm for him but I agree completely with what Hugo said Melbourne have a market now. Market's all you need. Drive up that price. Um, and, you know, Jackson will get the best deal as well. So I think it works for everyone except for Fremantle, who will now probably <laughs> have to pay overs for him. Uh, ben, keen to get your take on this one. We've got the Magpie Army as you, you turn the Novi up in Sydney in force. They sold out their 14,000 member tickets pretty quickly, I hear. Um, Collingwood and Sydney. Sydney on their home deck in front of a a raucous SCG, SCG crowd. Surely it's a bridge too far for the pies, but is this momentum just going to roll on? I don't know. Um, I'll just preface this by saying I'm really excited for this prelim. I, I think it's got a lot to it and it's it's a great one for a neutral and, and fans of the two respective clubs. It has a little tinge of the Bulldogs in 2016 traveling up to play GWS in that prelim. I mean, a, f- a few elements around it, obviously, um, that they finished in the four, the pies did, but they've had to get there the hard way. They've got this swarm of momentum building. They've got this cavalcade of feral fans making their way up the Hume. Um, and they're just going to descend like a low mist onto the MCG at 4.30 on, on Saturday. And I think the atmosphere is going to be absolutely scintillating. I think on the other side of that coin, the Swans are more than up to the task and they will come out firing. Uh, so I just think it, it's going to be a great one. I know that doesn't really answer your questions. I think the Swans are probably just a bit 
too good a footy side uh, when push comes to shove. And obviously you've got to turn your head back to when they last met only a month ago. And it was more or less a non-contest. I don't think that Sydney have come in since then. And I don't think that Collingwood have improved drastically. So that's your benchmark. That's what I got to go off. But nonetheless, I'm absolutely pumped for it. What do you boys no, think? That is one of the best previews we've had all year. <laughs> Can't really follow on too much there, except for saying I think yeah the the game against Sydney in Sydney a few weeks ago or you know, a month or two ago now um, is huge. Uh, Sydney will take a lot of confidence from that. A lot of Collingwood fans will say oh yeah we've learnt how to play against Sydney and you know we use that to our advantage. But you know Sydney also knew how to play against you then and have proven that they're a better side. So I think it'll be a close game. It's going to be a good game. Collingwood aren't going to just roll over. Um, It'll be interesting to see if Buddy can get some good form going into a granny um, if he does win. And, you know, hopefully James Robottom can can tear it up again, um, friend of the podcast. But <laughs> I think it's I think it's gonna be an awesome day in Sydney for for sport. Um, because I think they scheduled a NRL final at 8 30 that night, which follows around the corner on from the SCG. So Sydney will be pumping. <laughs> Yeah, we'll be pumping. Might take the mantle just for that afternoon as sporting capital of the, the country. They um, can have it. I, I think this one should be actually probably far too good for the Pies here and win by five goals, much like they did a few rounds ago. But there's something about Collingwood. And if Collingwood win this game, I got they're winning the flag, I think. Like it's, I don't think if they can beat Sydney in Sydney, I don't think it stops there in front of the, in the MCG, in front of their, their home crowd. They've already shown they can do the Cats and... I mean, they wouldn't fear the Lions on grand final day. So I really fear what will happen if Collingwood win this game. So That's, I honestly I think, reckon if if Collingwood win, then I reckon Brisbane are more of a chance beating them on grand final day than Geelong. Like, it's just that type of game. Like, <laughs> no, I do think Collingwood have been playing their best footy all year right now. Their game against Geelong was the best game all season. They lost and then they just, Fremantle weren't competitive against them, to be honest. Um, do we all, sorry. No, nothing. Sorry, do we do we all still agree that it's Geelong's to lose? Because I feel like they're yeah. not like the storyline around them not as ex, is not as exciting, um, and I don't think that they're getting the oxygen out of us or out of other media outlets that they probably deserve. But like, it is theirs to lose. They're they're still more or less unbackable favourites for it. I don't think they're unbackable, think so. but I think they're definitely favourites. I think the, the week off, you know lightens the narrative a bit more because you want to be talking about the, the recent results um, and, you know, the storyline of Sydney, you know, home, home prelim, that kind of takes over a bit more, whereas Geelong are playing at the MCG and against Brisbane in all likely 60 to 70,000 people, um, not quite as as grandeur. Uh, but I think it's definitely Geelong's to lose. Yeah, you're right there. Yeah, recency bias is strong in the yeah. AFL world. Um, just before we finish on the AFL, don't know if you caught, but this afternoon it was revealed that James Heard was interviewed earlier this week for the Essen coaching job. What was your source to... there? Just, just wondering, Hamish. I chatted to Herdy and spoke about what he'd been up <laughs> John to. Ralph. John Ralph said it. There you go. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I came out of Fox Footy the, this afternoon and Jordy Lewis talked about it on 360, I think, as well. Um, it's an interesting one. And it means it's very real. So there's definitely a section of the Essendon board that are keen to hear James out and see what he's got to say. Um, thought Mark Robinson spoke well 
on 360 tonight um, about this situation. Friend of the podcast. <laughs> Friend of the podcast. Uh, one of Ben's all-time favourites, I think, Mark Robinson. Um, <clears throat> but he did he did make some good points. Yes, um, there would be an element of dredging back up old wounds if Heard got appointed. But as he said, those wounds are still there at Essendon, even if you appoint. Adam Uze or someone else. And the best way from here is probably just to appoint the best coach available. And instead of constantly weighing up this whole, um, how's it going to look to the media? How's it going to look to to the footy community in general? Just do what's best for the club. And ultimately that's going to bring you the most success. And I think interesting as well. I don't know if you listened to James's interview on the Howie Games podcast, but he does, it seems, and from what I've heard, he's not interested in coaching for him. It's not about him reaching some kind of redemption story or proving to anyone he's got what it takes. He doesn't, it's kind of the opposite. In fact, he's, you know, had a pretty roller coaster ride the last six or seven years, and it's taken him five years to kind of build his self esteem up and um, his confidence back up to be in this position. And he just wants to coach because he loves the, the SN Football Club. He, uh, from all reports, he was the favourite for the GWS job, but pulled out because his best mate Mark McVeigh was running, and he wanted to try and help Mark get that job. Um, so I don't think he planned on entering this process. Essendon rang him; it wasn't the other way around. They're the ones who asked him to enter into it, and he thought long and hard and decided to throw his hat in the ring. So it will be interested to see where it lands from here. Um, but I'm keen to get your your boys' unbiased takes on this one. Well. I think you've definitely brought me around on the point that if he is the best coach for the job, then you give him the job. So you can park that. I agree with that. I just don't think he's the best coach for the job. I don't, I mean, I obviously I'm not as invested in this as you are and I don't, I'm not fully across who all the candidates are, but I would be amazed, especially what we've seen from, other coaches who have come from the associate ranks or sorry, the assistant ranks and what they've been able to do like McRae at Collingwood. Um, I just think the prerequisite that they had to have been a senior coach before, I know they've walked that back, but I don't think that should really carry that much sway, particularly because most senior coaches end up being fired. Like, <laughs> obviously you Ross Lyons are an exception, but he quits while the house is on fire. So I don't know if that's much better either. And they had to pay a whole lot of damages to avoid a public lawsuit about his actions whilst at the club as well. So, <laughs> so like, yeah, I, I don't think that should be a prerequisite to hurt. Yeah. If he's the best man for the job and they can prove that on some objective, objective basis, then yeah, but it has to be meritocratic and I don't know. I, I just can't understand how he, he really is the best man for the job. Yeah. I um, don't have too much more to add. Good to hear from an Essendon fan, their, their opinion. I'm sure there's people who disagree with you, Hamish, but um, I think the, you just have to hire the best coach you can. <laughs> yeah. I think um, that is probably the opinion of most yeah. Bombers fans. There'll be some who see him as a messiah and some who see him as Satan. So yeah. Um, you got to try Just and park the emotion. One last one on that. When obviously we're into the trade period now, and even for teams that aren't in finals, there's still a bit happening. At what point does it become an issue that you don't have someone at the forefront of the club? Like how much longer are you comfortable with this selection process going on for? Well, the main man's there, Ben. 
Adoro is, is still <laughs> Don't worry about the club. It. So it's it not really matter. The man pulling the strings behind it all is, is still there. Um, no, I, I, I really think they, they said the grand final was their timeline. And no, they definitely shouldn't rush it. Also, they're not in the market for any big fish. So it um, doesn't seem to be a huge... There's no competition as well now. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're the only team looking for a coach. So they can take their time. But um, the longer it drags out, the more um, curious it is for everyone involved and the more unstable the club is. So um, it would, there's probably, it's going to result in probably a whole shift in the coaching staff as well. So I'm sure all the assistant coaches are waiting to see who's appointed to see if they keep their jobs as well. Um, so it affects a whole lot of people. So I think always sooner the better, but they don't want to rush the decision. All right. One more topic to discuss in footy and that is the AFLW. Um, seen a, a great start to the season, particularly I think a great storyline is the the Bombers' um, first season in the AFL, uh, bringing in some key players, maybe Prasparkas and um, Georgia G from Carlton. They're now genuine contenders for finals, maybe not for the Premiership. Melbourne and Brisbane look too strong there. Um, but it is very good to see a, a new side come out and compete really well. They probably should have beaten Carlton um hamish have you gotten behind the girls and bombers you remember yet <laughs> i haven't watched a full match since the the first round against the hawks i've watched the highlights from the last couple of weeks uh and yeah it's really exciting they're a chance to to win a final for the club don't know if that counts as breaking the drought or not um <laughs> it'd be a hell of an effort in their, their first season uh and i think you know it the vfl team um, yeah. women's team has been strong for a while so it's not a it's not a shock surprise and they're obviously fortunate in their recruiting as well um i do swear i thought you got them down here for gold coast and another of the inaugural yeah. teams who don't have the same um kind of previously existing support network to make sure they were well set up for the the competition um it's been a really rough start to the season for them they've uh, had a win and- though I mean, yeah, yeah, no, they've had a win. I think the what it showed on the weekend was just the gap between yeah. the experience, the best teams in the comp and uh, the, the weaker sides, which is an issue that we see in all sporting codes around the world. And I think the one that's actually going to be less and less the more AFLW that's played in the, the coming years. Um, but I do tend to agree with you, Hugo, Melbourne and Brisbane just look a class above at the moment. Yeah, expansion's yeah. hard. Like it's, it's always difficult and it's just going to take time, I think. But I, I just, I, I'm a real convert to the 18 team comp for the women's game. I just think it, it gives it a lot of, a bit more relevance. Um, I, I just like it. Absolutely. And I think it was smart of them to, I mean, we're way behind on this, but it was, a, it was a great idea for them to do it when they did you build it and they will come, you know, you've invested in the 18 teams and maybe the competition's a little bit weaker for a year or two, but the best players are still going to be playing and you develop and grow the game much faster. Um, The other thing I think it's important to touch on is the ACL injuries that continue to plague the AFLW. So I think Izzy Huntington's just done her or uh, last week did her third ACL. This is a number one pick for the Bulldogs who is, meant to be one of the best players in the comp. She's barely had a game. Uh, and then in the first three seasons, teams averaged one ACL a year. That's uh, that was what, 14 ACLs. And it it just is awful. And they have no idea how to fix it. There's research going into it. Um, and, you know, every expanding league has, has teething issues and things 
you overcome, but this is something that's really disappointing and and hopefully the science can get a bit better. Yeah, it's a shocking and it's just so debilitating. It's as as everyone knows, it's the full season, it's a 12 monther. And then as poor Izzy Huntington and a lot of players throughout the game have have learnt the hard way, it doesn't always heal. Um, yeah. and and it's liable to go again, which is such a difficult thing for the player with their confidence on when they come back. And I just think players that continue to rehab from really severe injuries like that time after time, um, cause a rehab procedure for anyone that's, that's done it on any sort of injury is painful and it's tiresome and it's lonely. And I just think it's the mark of a, a true professional that they keep coming back and back, but obviously it's something that would be great if we could reduce it in the women's game. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see as the sports science project progresses, they had a short, really, really shortened preseason this year and i would not be surprised if there was a link between just the lack of time in the gym to build up the muscles supporting you need around you need because they just finished a season you know in march yeah. order and they're, they're going again now your body's both when you fatigued and not got the the k's in the legs and the scars it needs to actually hold up under the game um the stuff with like boots and turf as well um, yeah and yeah, we do see a link yeah. yeah, we do see a link between certain grounds and ACLs, both in the, the men's and the women's game. And not just ACLs, but a whole lot of other kind of um, this Frank injuries and um, the syndesmosis as well. I know Optus Stadium copped a lot of flack this year for, for their service and Marvel used to as well. So that's surely something that can be fixed in the short term, um, even if it's going to take longer term stuff in terms of um, pre-seasons and stuff to be able to change the others. So, yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's not a good thing. Yeah, and it's especially hard in the AFLW when they're not full-time athletes yet. So, you know, they're trying to do rehab whilst working full-time in the off-season. Um, pretty pretty challenging stuff. Yeah, and hopefully we'll have a little bit more on the uh, AFLW front over the coming weeks with a, a few pretty exciting guests lined up for the listeners to look forward to. Stay tuned. All right, let's change tracks. Uh, ben, it's been a busy week in the cricket world. Sure has. And aforementioned friend of the podcast, the great Aaron Finch has, has stood down. He's finished his one-day career, finished in style, missing a straight ball um, on the, on single figures. But I think it was, it was certainly time for him to draw the curtains on what has been a very good um, 50 over international career. Don't have the stats in front of me, but a handful of centuries. He's been a mainstay. 17. 17 centuries. There you go. I mean, you can't you can't knock that. Um, been a mainstay at the top order of the uh, of the one day side. Won himself a World Cup in on his home ground at the MCG as well. So a tremendous career, and I think the timing was right. Uh, it does bring up a, a bit of a tricky question, but but one that we won't shy away from here as hard hitting journalists. Uh, should his form in the one day side, and we can broaden this to should form in general in the one day game impact T20 selection. So Hamish, you can either answer that specifically through the lens of Finch or, or at a more general abstract level. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's not a binary question. I think it's a consideration you have to take uh, when it comes to selection. So Finch's T20 form over the last couple of years is fine. Uh, it's passable. Yeah. Um, it's definitely selectable. His one-day form obviously has been tough for a couple of years now. 
it's hard to see how you can change your game dramatically. So this was an interesting interview he gave with Jared Waitley on SEN. He was talking, Jared was asking him about the T20. Well, he didn't ask him explicitly, are you in good enough form to stay in the team? But he, he did ask how he was tracking towards it. Finchie was talking about, oh yeah, I've made some adjustments in my game. I'm actually really happy with where it's at. Really excited to get into it. But it, it kind of seems to me, it just looks like, um, to use the, the great cricketer's terms, his eyes are just gone. So he can't really see the ball anymore, which I, I think probably transfers across. Um, he's got three T20s in India and then a handful of games against the West Indies and New Zealand, potentially, I think, back in Australia again um, before the, it's not New Zealand, someone else, before the, the World Cup to hopefully try and um, get rid of any demons. Um, it's a good question. I think white ball forms naturally lend themselves to each other. I don't think red ball form should impact your white ball selection though. I agree. Just on that, like your eyes are gone point. Obviously that's a pretty extreme statement, but what we're talking about is the <laughs> highest level of cricket. And even if you're losing, you know, a split second of reaction time, uh, all of a sudden it gets very, very challenging at that top level. It's um, it's not a Finch thing. It like, it's all of them having to ponting having to Gilchrist, Chris, yeah. Chris Rogers by the end. Um, eventually if you play till your mid to late thirties, your body just isn't at the same state. It was yeah. in your, your late twenties. Rahul Dravid started getting bold on his last tour of Australia. <laughs> I remember seeing it like he just missed a straight one off Siddle or something. I was like, Oh, probably time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was interesting. He didn't get out LBW in that game. I feel like he was just genuinely like, yeah, I'm going to try and hit him over the top. <laughs> <laughs> um hamish in case you were wondering we're playing england in those t20 matches they start on the 9th of october and there's two games in monica so you better get down to them oh yeah locked in see you there um <laughs> hugo who captains a one-day team yeah now that, that finchie stepped down so from all reports there's five candidates alex carey is uh the the punter's favorite here we've got steve smith Pat Cummins, Mitchell Marsh, and then the absolute dark horse, smoky David Warner, who's still in discussions with Cricket Australia regarding his leadership ban. Um, seems unlikely, but which of those five do you reckon? Well, I just don't get why there's no talk about Glenn Maxwell captaining. Like, it just seems like he would be right to do it going into this ODI World Cup next year, probably be the, the last one for him. Um, because you're, you're looking more out of these guys unless you do go carry, which I'm not saying they won't. Um, he'd probably be a good option. He's pretty set in his his spot. But unless you, if you choose any other guy, they're getting towards the end of the career. I think Smith doesn't seem like he wants it. Cummins, I don't think you want to give him more unless you just say do it until the end of the World Cup. Um, but he he needs he didn't even play the last six ODIs, you know, rested himself, which is absolutely fair enough. Um, and he should be. He's a bowler who plays every single test match and captains. Um, Mitch Marsh, I think, is also a good option, but his body's just not quite there, I don't think, to, and, or not good enough to to captain. Um, maybe more. Or lead to Rome then. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a T20 captain there. Um, and then, yeah, David Warner, I don't think he'll get his... Um, ban repealed. I think he should captain Big Bash. You know why not? Um, he can captain IPL. Why not Big Bash? Um, but captaining Australia. I also just think you know for two years, is it worth the media circus? It's going to be um, 
you know, he's definitely not going to captain more than two. He's probably being a bit harsh on on Smith, Cummins, Marsh and stuff, saying their careers are almost over. But Warner especially, it is, you know, twilight of his career and I don't think it's worth putting the Australian team and, you know, the coaches through all the drama of picking David Warner as your captain. And on the Alex Carey one, I just find this one, like, quite bizarre. He's a very good one-day player and he has been since the, the 2019 World Cup. Pretty one of the first names on the list, but we've been hearing about his leadership qualities basically since he was born, I think. Um, <laughs> and I still, I still think it would be a bit of a strange look because to me, he's not one of the senior players in that side. Maybe it's because he's not necessarily the best player in that side. Does it, is it just a thing that the cricket team just really loves him? And he must be great behind closed doors. Or I missed something. Yeah, chat. it could be. Yeah. Good block syndrome. <laughs> I don't know. It's good advice to any youngsters listening out there. Get yourself branded as a leader early because <laughs> people will gloss over your ability pretty quickly if you can be considered a leader. I'm not saying, obviously, Carey's got the ability side of it, sort of, but you're right. He's just had that reputation with him all the way up the ranks. And from day dot on the international scene, he was talked about as, as a future captain. And once you sort of pinned as a future captain, you can't be dropped because you can't drop the future <laughs> captain. And it's so there. I just think I, mean, I don't I'm not saying that he's finessed this entire system. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure it's all um merited, but I just think that he he certainly um hasn't done him any any disservice. It's the exact same as Travis had in the test side. He's he was VC very early, talked about as captain and then his form dropped and they were like, oh God, I guess we're gonna have to drop him. And then he got back in uh, our captain again. Like it, it just seems like, I don't know, he's not consistent enough just yet. Um, but yeah, Kerry, I don't know. Has he captained much domestic level? I don't think he's done a whole lot. Maybe some. He's done South Australia um, yeah. in the, the white ball stuff, I think, and a bit yeah, of I red think, ball stuff as well. But I think Glenn Maxwell definitely shouldn't be overlooked. Maybe he doesn't have the, the changing room. I've, I've heard he doesn't get along with, with as many players as some of the other boys, but you'd think, he'd be a pretty decent captain and there's no chance he's getting forced out of that side. Um, yeah. Especially with the World Cup being in India next year. Um, he'd probably be the first name picked, to be honest. Yeah, it would be a change in uh, personality in terms yeah. of going from Finch, who from all reports is the guy that like every single person in Australia cricket loves, regardless yeah. of whether they're a big personality or not. To Maxwell, who's obviously a strong personality, but surely he's a tactician who's played so yeah. much white ball cricket. It's hard to it's hard to see any of the others being a better tactician than him. Um, I think they'll go carry. I still think it'll be take a little while to adjust and to get used to that that look. Um, and it really for Carey, you know, if he's captain of the white ball team, I don't know how long his career will go compared to Pat Cummins, but it lines him up for some pretty wow. big in in the other codes as well, I think. Um, so yeah. just just quickly on this, Hamish, and, and also you, Hugo, because you've both played a bit of cricket. And I know this is I hear you say this a fair bit, Hamish. You're really big on a tactician as a as a captain, probably aside or putting that above being a good people person or being generally liked. Is that a mischaracterization of, of where you stand on leadership in cricket, or is that pretty spot on? I think when it comes to the international game, I think you you need really good tacticians in your team. They've got David Warner, who's one of the best cricket brains in the world. Um, 
But I think your captain does need to be a really good tactician in the white ball stuff in particular, because I think in test cricket, there's way more questions around mental fortitude and um, how the team uh, gets along with each other. This white ball stuff, it's just a rep team, essentially. Yeah, that's a really good point. Your best hitters. And if Glenn Maxwell has a plan, it doesn't really matter if a couple of the guys don't have as much respect for him as for someone else. Um, I'm going to back in his plans to to get the team home. The coach's role should be the one to galvanize the team because they, it's bizarre to me. Like the coach cannot influence the game when it's underway. What other sport do you have where the coach just sits (laughs) there for the (laughs) entire match without being able to to influence it? Um, So yeah, I definitely, I think that's a fair characterization, man. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, think, I just think it's spot on. Sorry. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say. I think we talked about this over over summer, saying that you know in Test match it's a lot more about analytics now, and the captain doesn't really change too much. You know, you're gonna bowl your opening bowlers for X amount of overs, maybe change you know plus minus one over depending on if the ball's swinging or not. Like, so I think for the Test you need someone like Pat Cummins who really has the room and and the aura about him. Um, but for T20, you see a lot more tactical changes. I think the coach does have a big role in T20 cricket, actually, because they now swing these changes, you know, a very fluid batting lineup. you got your openers and then everyone else can bat anywhere. Um, and then the field setting is drastically different depending on the different tactics you're going to bowl. And that also comes with experience for the bowlers. So having someone like Adam Zamper and Mitch Stark in your team is very very lucky for Australia. Um, but yeah, it will, I'm sure we'll have a deep dive into the Australian T20 yeah. side. For the, for I don't want to bang on about it. Obviously, Finch's spot will need to be replaced and well, straight away the team's come out and Travis Head's been named as the obvious replacement. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, and to be honest, I think Travis Head has a serious role to play in White Ball Creek going forwards. He's Where's a very Osman talented Kawaja? hitter. Kawaja. Or it, like, it's always occurred to me that Glenn Maxwell should be given a a, a go opening the batting for Australia yeah. because I'm backing his technique to get through the new ball or whatever. He has this role as this number seven to number eight to come in and just hit 20 balls. But imagine what he could do if he had 50 overs to build an innings. He's he's the, I think you said this. He's the worst managed sportsman yeah. in the history of ball sports. It's England just have seven Glenn Maxwells and they bat them wherever you have Joe Root who can also be Glenn Maxwell when he wants like Australia is not going to beat England by scoring 180 or whatever we did to beat New Zealand like it just won't happen so I think you can take these wins it is you know we're looking towards a T20 World Cup not a one-day World Cup right now but um, I think something's going to have to change before the before the ODI of World Cup I think Australia is getting a very confident look into their their team after rolling New Zealand but you know, we scored 200. I think our highest score was 240. England isn't scoring anything less than 300, 350. So, yeah, we're in for a rude shock next year, I think. But we did win the Zimbabwe series. Just, yes. But <laughs> got, over, got over the line. A couple of tosses went our way. Um, <laughs> the last one we should mention on the cricket is Steve Smith said he's unlikely to play in the Big Bash this year. Uh, he doesn't, hasn't, as far as we know, been courted by the UAE League yet. And even if he was, he wouldn't be allowed to play by all reports, they would stop him from going. Um, but he's basically not been offered the same deal as David Warner, uh, who is on, I believe, about 300K to play six games. So fair bit of bunts there to to play a few games. Um, Smith was offered about 150 for five games. 
you know, it's something I'd probably look at and think about um, because it. I'd given the opportunity. <laughs> if any sponsors want to do a similar thing with our podcast, we will look at that. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to see how they treat different players, different senior players differently based on their marketability or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, I also don't think like Steve Smith is not the T20 player. David Warner is performance alone. I think that's a very fair balance. Um, I think Steve Smith probably shouldn't be in our international T20 side. So, you know, how can he command the same as David Warner? Um, but yeah, we're not too much else to go on there unless Ben has any drastically different opinions. Nah, nah, tiny violence. <laughs> Thanks, I reckon. All right, let's move on. Moments of the week, boys. Ben, start us off. Huge moment. Yeah, big moment in the tennis world. And there's been a few false dawns, but I think we can confidently announce a changing of the guard in the men's <laughs> game, maybe. Um, ho- hopefully, at least, the ushering in of a future star, Carlos Alcaraz. He, as I said off the top, won his maiden Grand Slam. He's 19 years old, guys. Um, what were you doing when you were 19? He's the number one tennis player in the world. His coach was interviewed and they clipped it up on the ABC this morning as I was driving to work. His coach said that he reckons he's at about 60% potential, yeah. which when you watch some of the points and matches he played this US Open, I think he broke the record for time spent on court in a, a Grand Slam because he played grueling five set after grueling five set most of them nighttime matches and at the U S open, they play, they just go all through the night basically. So he's a physical machine. He's got immaculate technique and he's hungry as hell. He's super ambitious. I always love when you get these tennis players that speak a little bit of broken English. So they sort of get away (laughs) with saying the most outlandishly cocky stuff. And, and this was an interview he did on the BBC and, and talking about breaking all the records, Roger, Rafa Novak, he wants them all. He's here for all the smoke and I'm here for all of it. So I'm very excited. And that is my moment of the week and certainly one for tennis fans to watch out for. Yeah, he played what, like four or five setters in a row to finish the tournament, something ridiculous. Um, and if him at that point is only at 60%, I, I fear for the rest of the tennis world. But it is exciting to have someone, a new name in the, the tennis world, as Ben said. My moment of the week was quite a dramatic one. It came in La Liga over the weekend during a, the Barcelona versus Cadiz game. Um, Cadiz is where Mobile Soccer Roo plays. It was delayed for an hour after a fan suffered a heart attack during the game. And the players were some of the first to kind of... Um, uh, be drawn to notice by, of the heart attack by the fans. And it resulted in the goalkeeper sprinting across a pitch, kind of no time to try and communicate with staff at the, the ground, grabbed the defibrillator from the, the bench, sprinted across the pitch and threw it into the crowd. Uh, fortunately, the fan was resuscitated and is now in hospital at the moment um, in a, a stable condition, I think, but um, still not out of the woods by any neck. But um the, it was pretty remarkable scenes. The players were pretty affected by it. Uh, the score didn't change after the game resumed. Barcelona won 2-0, but it was one of these. Another moment that seems to happen at soccer games a lot with the fans and with the players as well. Um, but, yeah, it was a pretty surreal thing to, to happen during a game and some really important actions from one of the players to to save a life during the, 
during the contest. Um, there you go. Um, yeah, that's harrowing. above and beyond, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow. Um, big moment and one I definitely missed. So thanks for sharing that, Hamish. I've gone for a, a more general one, one that we all saw, and that's Aaron Finch's retirement. I just think it, you know, he's been the captain the whole you know, since the 2015 World Cup, pretty much that innings, I still remember being there for the the first game of the, that World Cup against England, 100, opened the tournament up at his home ground, the MCG. And then from, from that moment on, and even before then, you know, very dominant force in Australian cricket and just so bankable, arguably, should have kept his spot in the test side a bit longer. Um, but, you know, really good service to, to Australian cricket and, Big fan of a, a big Victorian. Friend of the podcast. Friend of the <laughs> podcast, yeah. Um, good on you, Hugo. So the fan moment of the week this week comes in from Jordan and it was an incredible announcement from the Wolverhampton Wolves who announced the return of Diego Costa to the Premier League. Uh, the infamous Chelsea player who had a, uh, a very successful spell actually in the Premier League and gone on to do all kinds of interesting things around the world and for Spain. Um, renowned for his uh, aggression on the pitch as well as his fast finishing. But the uh, the video that Wolves put out to announce it was, uh, I heard everything from terrifying to um, creative, it being described as. Uh, it was basically a bunch of, um, I don't think they were wolves, but they were a breed of dog that certainly looks a little bit like a wolf. Four of them with metal chains in the dark alleyway. And slowly the light revealed who was holding these wolves who were all barking like they had rabies uh, at the camera. Um, And it's just Diego Costa standing there, staring, not moving. The funny thing is, though, when you watch it, his arms are moving. He's trying to keep really still. His arms are moving everywhere because these dogs are trying to run. (laughs) And he's trying to maintain a a straight position. clearly unable to i don't think i don't know how many dogs he's walked in his time it was a pretty it was a pretty cool way to introduce a new player and it's exciting for the the premier league to have diego back because he's an absolute character um, yeah he like chelsea's last decent striker as well um so it'd be interesting to see him return back to stanford bridge indeed it will now Hugo, it's quite late on a wednesday night when we're <laughs> recording easy to lose track of time this time of the week do you have the time on you Yes, I do, Hamish. It is time for Australia and the world's favourite podcasting segment, Hit or Miss. I'll get us started here. I've been thinking about this one for a while, um, having lived next to and walked and ran and driven past the stadium hundreds of times for the last few years. Um, and that is that Carlton should push the AFL to host games at Icon Park within the next five years. Um, so this is after their redevelopment of the stadium to be the home of the AFLW. The capacity will be over 20,000. Um, and I think they could include plans to expand it to even more. Um, whether it's part of a retro round first and then you have a historic game. Um, I think you could have the first game against Essendon for say, and, you know, sacrifice, sacrifice the the ticket sales for one game to have the big return to, to Icon Park. Cause I don't think you can do the first one as, you know, against Gold Coast or something, but the first game against Essendon, you can't do it at Collingwood cause that's, 
a bit too big. Um, but <laughs> but uh, Hamish is making a face now. Um, but then from that year onwards, you only have one or two. Sorry, that first game onwards, you only have one or two games there a season, and you do it as as a retro or you know heritage round against you know a small interstate side or something like that that also wants to celebrate their their heritage, maybe a West Coast or something. Um, but I think it'd be an amazing idea um, and would cause a lot of you know investment. But take it away. <laughs> It's a big, it's a big setup for a hit or miss. Yeah. <laughs> Firstly, I've got a few things to say before I answer. Firstly, Let's go line said, item by line item. You've said smaller interstate team and then gone for the biggest club in the land in the Eagles. We have 105,000 members. Yeah. So I'm not sure how they will appreciate that one. That was um, a separate comment, but yeah. <laughs> that's just a cheap drive-by. Um, I, I agree with pretty much all of it except for the Essendon game there. Not so much for the ticket sales, but you're going to lock out 30,000 yeah. Carlton fans from going, let alone 50,000 Essendon fans who also want to see that game. I actually was thinking, as you were saying, I think they could play the annual Gold Coast Carlton Marvel game at Icon Park very happily because um, that's a bit of, always a little bit of a, a graveyard fixture, that one at, at Marvel. The reason why it won't happen is because the AFL now owns Marvel Stadium yeah, and that's... they will not be keen to give up those those games. Um, I like the idea in general. I know Ben discussed this earlier, way back at the start of the podcast, about a, a retro round or heritage round, something like that. Um, I think, yeah, I think one game a year against a a naturally small interstate team um, <laughs> would be would be a, a good option. Um, what do you reckon, Ben? So I'm I'm way more bullish on this than even you guys here on this. I think the whole premise is a complete hit, and I think it should be uh, at least somewhere on a whiteboard at AFL House trying to maneuver the game back to suburban grounds. I also think there's a pretty decent blueprint for it in Geelong. Uh, I think Geelong's a very profitable club. They're profitable for themselves. I think they're profitable for the AFL, and they you know, manage a pretty fine line between playing the right sort of games at Kidinya Park and then the right sort of games at Etihad and then the even bigger games at the MCG. So there's a club that's utilizing three grounds and doing it with success. I just think it brings, uh, it would bring a lot of character and flavor back to the AFL, which I think with where, you know, at risk of losing, with as the game becomes more and more commercialized, I just think it doesn't have to be, you know, a fully, fully fledged return back to suburban grounds, but develop them, invest in them. It's good for the local community. It's good for the AFLW and the AFL. And then you can really start rebuilding the game from the, the grassroots up using these community hubs. Yeah, I um I made a big Twitter post about this uh about a week ago. So if you want to hear my full thoughts, they're all on all on Twitter. Um, the only other thing I, I wanted that to one. mention, <laughs> the only other thing I wanted to mention was about um baseball in America does this sort of stuff really well. So it's a bit of a different game. Baseball, you know, the history behind it, slowly losing fans to a certain degree. So they've now tried to re-energize it by doing things like the field of dream game, which is just an unbelievable um, initiative that you would never imagine a sporting organization to, to organize, but they have, and it's been a huge hit. The television views for it, I think were the largest outside the playoffs all year. 
Um, and you know, they only had 10,000 fans there because it was in the middle of a farm. <laughs> but you know, you do sort of stuff like this and you, you build the game. Um, yeah, I think it'd be great. Oh, it'd be uh, so much fun to go back to. To go yeah. like, yeah, especially I, I like the idea of doing it against an interstate team because the smaller clubs would have a taste of what it would be like to be a Collingwood fan last Saturday night and just have this completely partisan crowd. I just feel like if, if you're a Pies fan at that crowd, you feel it's so safe. Like yeah. you could say, <laughs> you could say anything and no one's touching you. Like everyone around you is a Pies fan. It would just be a nice feeling to be a smaller club and have that every once in a while. It would be. I think you should both come and watch a game at Monica uh, before making <laughs> your final calls because it is a partisan crowd there. But when we're so used to going to the MCG, it is a real change in feel um, and one that I think works for one or two games a year, but yeah. not one that I would I would look for any more than that. Um, my hit or miss is... It's a Mark Robinson quote because I know he needs to be mentioned at least twice on every podcast. You hit our um, quota. So this is his words. The market is all wrong on this. This is him talking about Melbourne's demand for two first rounders for Luke Jackson. Robbo's view is that uh, the market completely undervalues draft picks and we throw away three first rounders for Jeremy Cameron, um, two first rounders for basically any decent to, to very good player now um the likes of dylan shield over the year kind of set that that precedent and clubs are followed on um is the market all wrong on this or have we got it pretty much right i think this is a miss from robbo i think draft picks are valued the way they are because they're unproven you know you have draft busts it seems a lot less now because recruiters are pretty good but it does happen Whereas proven talent is proven. Um, obviously, things can go wrong. Dylan Shields' performance as Essendon hasn't quite been up to what was expected, but he's brought some good form back in. And, you know, there's always a risk. But I think, especially for teams, like Geelong has been great at this, picking up players who have been have proven skills and between the ages of, you know, 22 and 25 or even older, Um who you know what you're going to get out of it rather than they, you know, they do, they've used the draft pretty well, but recruiting set players who are proven talent is, is very valuable. <laughs> I agree. I think it's a miss. I like the way you put it. Proven talent is proven. Um, yeah. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds axiomatic, but it it is just that. I mean, yeah. Your bird in the hand sort of philosophy um, is exactly what you're dealing with. And as the saying goes, it's worth two in the bush. And I, I would say that a draft pick is a bird in the bush. I think I've gone too far <laughs> with this. Um, but that's that's how I've done my market economics. And I think it stands to reason. Interesting. I think he's I think it's probably a hit. I think um the last couple of years it's been hard for recruiters and for the draftees because they haven't played any footy. So yeah. most of the, I mean, Nick Dacos is the exception really, but the likes of Jason Hall Francis didn't get to play um, as much, uh, although he was an Adelaide boy, he still wouldn't have got to play as much footy as he would have in a normal draft year. I think what we'll find is as they return to normal levels in the next couple of years, draftees will be able to come in straight away and make an impact. And I know Carlton's had a few misses over the recent <laughs> years, but when you look at the likes of Kerno and Mackay, it kind of, you know, 
picks in the middle of the first round, the thought of giving up even one of those, let alone two for a player like Jacob Hopper, like Luke Jackson seems way overs to me. Um, I know you give them, you have to pay them more just the way the way that the it's all set up because you can't walk them through unless you come to agree to a deal. Um, but I think we, we do to some extent undervalue draft picks because they are unproven. And so we never actually value them correctly until three years down the track. Um, anyway, it's a bit of a niche one. Ben, take us on, take us on an even more niche one. Yeah, I was going to say, speaking of, speaking of niche, this is, um, I don't know if this will resonate with anyone out there, but had the, had the privilege to go to the final on Saturday night. And there was a rendition of the Australian national anthem, which was fine. Like it was, it was good. He had a good voice. He, he, he nailed the lyrics, um, but it didn't give me what I want out of a finals national anthem. And that was a really sort of rousing crescendo into crowd going ballistic players running out to their spot. I think that is, that is one of my favorite moments of a final that just deafening roar at the end of advanced Australia fair, which I think is a sort of six, five, six out of 10 anthem, but that absolutely makes it. And if you're not nailing that and old mate to finish the, story he sort of pissed around at the end of it he, he lost <laughs> his way completely lost his own the crowd went up and then realized that he still had a bit to go and then he's finished off and and the, the balloon was popped by then so to that i say either if you're gonna get the singer out just word them up that this is what we do in the footy everyone gets up at the end so you've got to you got to send them on their way or just play the cd track what do you reckon, Hamish? Hit or miss? Oh, it's actually a really hard one. Um, well, because of artistic freedom and all that. <laughs> Remember Fergie at the NBA All-Star game? No. <laughs> oh, that's that's really <laughs> neat. See if we can clip that up, listeners. That's like what happens when you give a bit of artistic discretion too much license. Okay. Hamish, I can, I, I can answer if you want to think sure. about it. Yeah. I think... I immediately thought miss and then I then thought when you were describing it in my head and I thought heard the like and then I can literally hear that in my mind and then it goes and it builds up I think you're right um it is a moment I'll I'll never forget the first grand final I went to the anthem plays wasn't expecting it and the crowd just goes bananas (laughs) You and weren't expecting the anthem, Hugo. <laughs> no, the crowd. You were expecting, you know, God, God save, save the, the queen, queen or something. <laughs> God save the king. Um, no, yeah, I think it's a it's a hit. You've done well there, Ben. Yes. All right, so I'm gonna be. It's a, it's a miss, but not by much. I think you <laughs> can have no. I think you can have the live singers, but you have to pay the backing track that is the CD track. So that forces them to stick to the rhythm of it but i do think it's better when you've got a live singer singing with it uh, i mean delta did her little acoustic stripped down version of the australian national anthem little triple j like a version on <laughs> on friday night and it was nice i think if it wasn't delta it wouldn't have gotten the hype that it did get in fact i think if it wasn't delta it would have been absolutely slammed by everyone <laughs> but it is delta um and she is one of the the melbourne and the media sweetheart so she gets away with it um 
I think it needs the full orchestra. I think it needs the backing track, but I think you could do it with a live singer. There you go. Yeah. Being the acoustic guitar. <laughs> All right, I think it's time to move on that. to uh yeah, big segment you can miss. I think it's time to move on to our even bigger segment. Um, <laughs> arguably our our favorite, even if it's not the fans' favorite. But it's the on this day on this week segment. And uh we do have an on this day this week on uh the 14th of September. I'm not sure if it was a Wednesday or not. Let's say it was a Wednesday, <laughs> but we're talking 1959. So we're going back a good 63 years that's impressive for me on the spot well 63 done. years and uh this was the birth date of none other than judy playfair she was an australian breaststroke swimmer <laughs> of the 1960s who won, who won a silver medal in the four by 100 meter medley relay at the 1968 summer olympics in mexico city more of a throwback to some of our older listeners on the show um trying to engage that that portion but judy's got one of the great names in the sporting world play fair rings true and yeah an icon of the breaststroking variety what um what leg of the medley did you swim i believe the breaststroke leg okay we'll we'll throw that over to the listeners to fact check and you can get back to us on that one well happy birthday judy and um congratulations on a outstanding career you let's go to some some fixtures across the world we'll start with the nfl um we've got some big games this weekend the chiefs play the chargers that's thursday night football uh Steelers patriots so a rivalry that's that's quietened down a lot in the recent years uh the ravens play the young dolphins dolphins looked really good against the patriots um last week uh tom brady plays against his bogey team the saints he's struggled against them his whole career and now he's in the same uh, conference, plays him a lot more. Uh, 49ers play the Seahawks, and the Rams play the Falcons, which is expected to be pretty one-sided. Uh, and then in the Formula 1, we have a, a couple of weeks off, so no fixtures there to, to dive into. The Caribbean Premier League continues in the cricket. The Indian women also play the English women uh, over in England, and it's Australia's team tours India for 20. So basically, we, the Australian summer started and finished in September, which is great to hear. Hamish, what about the, the world of soccer? Yeah, so as I mentioned off the, the top of the podcast, um, there's been a number of games that have been suspended or postponed, sorry, I should say, for this weekend in the English Premier League. But one we do have that's the the Asia game, as we call it here in the Asia time slot, the 9.30 p.m. Kickoff Australia time on Saturday night is Wolves versus City. Diego Costa time, baby. It's back in the Premier League. And who better to play first up than Manchester City uh, and just cause some chaos against the team of machines and robots that he'll be be coming up against. So I'm very keen for that one. Yeah, no, I think we all are. Uh, obviously, it's prelim time in the footy. So Friday night, Cats Lions MCG seven fifty, absolutely huge one. I'll be there. And then Saturday in the Arvo slot four forty five at the SCG. We've got the Swannies taking on Collingwood. Two crackers, probably the best week in uh in football before it all gets all corporatized next week. But I think it's one for the fans, and they're two tremendous games. Tough to 
tough to pick. I reckon there's Davis cup action on going in the tennis of the team side of sport. We've got the president's cup next week in golf at quail hollow. Look forward to that one. And then the week after there's the labor cup in tennis, which heralds the return of the great Roger Federer from over a month out of the sport. So he's going to play two events in the next month and a half, which will be very exciting for Roger fans. The world feels like he's over. been out for a lot longer years. than a month. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Years. Yeah. What did I say? No, he said a month. Sorry. Years. Said- no, he last played Wimbledon last year. So well, almost a year and a half now. Yeah. I love the, the President's Cup tennis action we've got coming up, Ben. Thanks. Thanks oh, very much. Did I say that? Did I? <laughs> <laughs> it's quite late on Wednesday night if yeah, you haven't heard. It is getting really late. Um, all right. Now let's get into our, our last segment, bold predictions. Mine is maybe a less bold one, but I think Steve Smith will be up, up, back to his absolute best this summer. Uh, looked in great form against New Zealand. Um and Zimbabwe, I guess, um, with an unbeaten 70 and a 120, I believe, in the in the game three there. I think he's looking great and hopefully another great song for, for Smudge. Amazing. Fingers crossed for that. I've got an all-Victorian grand final with the granny returning to the MCG for the first time in a couple of years. Uh, I want it to happen, and I think it will happen as well. Hamish, who's retiring this week? Yeah, it might be Buddy Franklin's last game, Ben. Um, but I think this one's will get up, so I don't think that'll be an issue for him. Um, talk about uh, coming out of retirement potentially. I think Judy Playfair might come out of retirement and report us to Spotify and to Apple Podcasts for making uh, an unforgivable error earlier in the show. We stated, and I will say we stated, that she was born in 1959. She was, of course, <laughs> born in 1953. Um She's looking great though, Judy. So you can hardly blame us for our mistake. And I'm going to stop talking now. <laughs> Before we get into any real trouble, we might wrap this show up. Hugo Hamish, thank you very much. That was a very enjoyable one. As you said, late on this Wednesday night, plenty, plenty, plenty to look forward to in the world of sport as always. And also as always, we'll be right here around the same time next week to wrap it all up for you guys and provide about an hour, an hour and a half of really high quality entertainment for you to listen to. All the best.